Happy New Year, friends and foggers. Welcome back to your favorite podcast at the intersection of faith and fear, where perhaps never more than today, we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is an extremely special fear of God. For all of your fear of God needs, be sure to visit us on the web at thefearofgodpodcast.com. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey, but frankly, I think he wanted a little plausible deniability for the hornet's nests I may be kicking up today. That's a joke. Reed fully endorses this episode, but was unable to be present. One for all and all for one, Riri. Last year, we spent nearly the bulk of the calendar examining our central tenets of what scares us and what saves us through the lens of both horror and non-horror film and media. And today, as a sort of epilogue to that series, a looking back so we can look forward, we are jettisoning the films and media as our lens and holding up to the light several issues of great relevance to faithful Christian dialogue today. Though Reed is not here, I will not be on this journey alone, thank God. If you have been with the show long, you may recall three years ago, circa the beginning of 2018, thank you, continuity guru Stephen Beckley, my referencing with great passion the works of a writer I had recently discovered, that of Dr. David Gushy. Then my co-host Reed is often the one prone to bold statements. He is not here, so I will make one of my own. It is possible that the heavy lifting accomplished in Dr. Gushy's books, one called Changing Our Minds and the other called Still Christian, finding me at the moment they did, might have at minimum given me water when I was thirsty and at most saved my faith. As one of them gave me the permission I needed to honor the direction I felt God was already shaping in me regarding full LGBTQ inclusion in the life of faith. And the other helped me see the potential of being a participant in the redeeming of the word and title Christian, so sullied and spoiled as so many have made it. Dr. Gushy is a professor, a pastor, a podcaster, an author, an ethicist. His new book, Introducing Christian Ethics, can be pre-ordered, we think, beginning January 11th, and I am so very deeply honored and privileged to have him on the show today. Dr. Gushy, thank you so much for carving out time from your schedule to be with us. I am very pleased to be with you, Nathan. Happy New Year to you and uh, your listeners, and thank, thank you, you for that incredible uh, intro. Um, you know, I've never heard anybody say exactly that about my work, and that means an awful lot to me. Sure. You, you, you are welcome. I uh, actually, yeah. Yeah. Um, before we get, before we go swimming in the deeps, I want to yeah. start with a, a few softballs and, uh, speaking of softballs, how about them Braves, Dr. Gushy? I know, I know, I know you're a Braves fan. Where do we start, Nathan? Uh, <laughs> let's just say, uh, I, I love my Braves and, uh, this was an incredible year. I don't know if there will be baseball in the year 2022, but we'll just, uh, We'll just be happy with what happened in 2021 for a while. 
there you go. So I am a Georgia boy, born and raised. Um, I, I don't speak sports to my father and older brother's great chagrin, but they join you in celebration for the Braves doing what they did. Uh, <laughs> That's cool. Thank you. Yes, sure thing. So every new guest and, and, and you are a new guest and, and who knows, maybe there's potential drop-ins in the future, but every first time guest, we ask a couple of questions. One of them is usually what's your favorite or, or something in the neighborhood of what's your favorite horror movie. If that is in fact true for you, you can speak to that, but I'm going to make a slight presumption and assume that might not be true. So uh, I'm going to refashion a a bit we usually use which is called whatcha and there's a little jingle for it and you know perhaps we'll drop it in here uh so my first question to you dr gushy is in the spirit of our show what you've been watching and or what you've been reading and or what you've been listening to what's something that you know outside of the the milieu of what you typically absorb as as an academic and and writer what's what's something you've been taking in that you want to share um my first comment about horror movies is uh, I saw a few in high school and <laughs> I, I found them so terrifying. Their images are so inescapable uh, that I never went back to watching horror movies. Um, Understood. Yeah. Anyway, I would say um, during the Christmas season, we gorge on the old classic Christmas movies. Yeah. Um, you know, White Christmas, uh, Miracle on 34th Street, Holiday and stuff like that. Sure. Just kind of go down uh, memory lane. Um, so, I don't know. It's a family tradition. So, I've been watching Christmas movies with my wife, and that's been fun. Awesome. i um, uh, been listening to the music of Leonard Cohen. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine did a book about him, and she asked me to endorse it. And so I, I didn't feel like I could endorse the book until I spent a lot of time listening to Leonard Cohen music. And I don't know how, you know, how familiar you are with, with him, but he's got, I mean, he had 50 years of music. I just kind of wow. swum around in his, his, uh, you know, career and catalog. Yeah. His catalog. And it was really, really rich. So I recommend some Leonard Cohen music. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, and what I've been reading, um, is I've been reading a lot of books about democracy authoritarianism and fascism um, <laughs> yeah. with my next project. Uh, so, That's some light bathroom reading. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you, know, yeah. you know, a few minutes, uh, you know, a little fascism, a little, <laughs> little, you know, no problem. It's, it's comfortable, you know? So, yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm with you there. I, I'm kind of scared to crack those open to be frank, but perhaps we, we, we lean into the fear. Um, speaking of leaning into the fear, the second of these pair of questions we tend to ask first time guests is, and and you can get as superficial and perhaps silly as you want. You can get as existential as you want. What what scares you, Doctor Gushy? Um, we have a few issues in my family uh, that scare me a lot that I can't talk about, but that sure. um, involve involving family members. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the feeling that our culture is deteriorating into polarization and that our democracy is threatened. I spend way too much time being afraid of that, but I think there's a good reason for it. You know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, I'm a, so what scares me is that we may not be able to have another successful election, um, mm. in this country. Uh, and I'm scared that the churches don't seem to have much to offer to our 
to that context of um, polarization and deterioration and political crisis. So, yeah, you want to get real. I'll get real real fast. I'm scared yeah. of all of things. But yes. meanwhile, on the average day, it's like, you know, family issues are always there. And, and so those are pretty real for me right now, too. So I'll just to be honest. Yeah. yeah, no, we, we appreciate and value the honesty. Um, pivoting into kind of the, the, the meat, as it were, as, as we get started, I want to personally offer perhaps a pastoral note to our listeners who, who come to this show uh, for silly frivolity, jokey Nathan's big laugh. And occasional profundity derived from horror movies, and who today are are might get none of one and minimal of the other. We'll see, but um, we're going to try to get to three specific subjects that are given a lot of attention in your work, Doctor Gushy. Those subjects are LGBTQ inclusion in the church, abortion, and race. I have no idea where some of these thoughts will lodge for some of our listeners, but I want to remind us that every week we perform the task of examining that which 99% of Christendom would say is at best useless and at worst demonic. On this show, we explore. We don't explain. Remember that. And every week we take what Christianity has called horrible and declare it of value, perhaps even holy. And so I just want to invite you, listener, who is nervous about this conversation, even myself, to have an open heart and spirit to the conversation. It's when we stop dialoguing that trouble finds us. And so here we are. Um, I want to establish some definitions, if you will, for us, Dr. Geshe, that will come up uh, a few times. So part of this is, is, is how did I discover your work? And frankly, I don't, I don't remember precisely. Um, all I know is, and the, the episodes of our show I referenced a minute ago at the beginning of 2018, I remember, and on this show, I had a conversation with Reed about the feeling of needing to set aside the word Christian. Mm. Like that actual conversation happened, not because of discontent with the Jesus of it all, but utter disheartenment over the Christian of it all. And literally the title of the book that introduced me to your work was called still Christian. And I, I remember, I don't even remember the context of it, but it was either like a, like a list of books or something that had released at the time. I, I don't recall. I just remember seeing the title immediately after that conversation and being like, dead gummit, not in a, not in a, this won't leave me alone way, but in a, okay. I need to be sensitive to how I juggle these definitions. And so with that in mind, we lean into the question of definitions because your, my introduction to you was as ethicist. Um, and so I want you to take a moment to kind of explain how we might understand that title, that role, because a lot of us have heard, you know, pastor and professor and that kind of thing is not foreign to uh, um, the, the average kind of church going Christian. Um, but ethicist may be new territory for the, the parameters on it. So, so address that one. And then also, because it's going to come up a lot, um, I do want to spend a moment just defining as best we can the word evangelical. So, so, so tackle those in, in, in either order that interest you most. Sure. Um, an ethicist is a, a kind of Christian scholar 
who examines the, the morality of the Christian faith, the, the way Christians uh, teach and live uh, in areas that are generally understood to be morally significant. So it's about right and wrong, good and bad. It's about how we deal with um, major moral issues that come up in everybody's life, as well as major kind of social issues, right? So, so an ethicist, the specialization of Christian ethics deals with that, you know, theologians deal with theology, pastoral care, people deal with pastoral care, historians deal with history, ethicists deal with morality, Christian morality. Okay. Um, and, and so there has been a discipline called Christian ethics, per se, since the late 19th century. So you can get PhDs in Christian ethics, as I did. But the work of, of uh, thinking about the moral dimension of the Christian faith um, goes back to the very beginning of Christianity. Uh, I mean, it's how do I live? What do I do with uh, money, with power, with sex, with um, privilege? Uh, how, how do we handle race and nation and um, beginning of life and end of life? Uh, sex and family and marriage, um, all of that is, is in the arena of ethics. And also more theoretical questions like, um, you know, uh, what uh, framework of moral rules versus moral freedom uh, ought we to be operating from as we think about how we decide what, what we do and how we live, right? Things like that. Um, so there's a lot of theory, but an awful lot of really practical application to everyday life. So that's what an ethicist is. Would you, I know that from, from reading your work and um, uh, the occasional blog post you're putting out these days that the work of Ron Sider was very important to you. And would you, because you name drop these, the, theologian, you know, pastoral, what, what honed you in as, okay, ethics, ethicist, that's, that's a specialty, specialty that is drawing me. That's a great question. It happened in seminary. Yeah. Um, I was uh, really excited from the first moment I sat down in an ethics class in seminary, the, the quality of the teaching and the kind of approach that was taken. I don't know. It brought together my, um, my Bible theology side together with my concern for the world that we live in today side. And, and mm -hmm. it, it brought those together in a way that um, really drew me. I did have some uncertainty about it for a little while. For a while, I thought I might be a Hebrew Bible scholar. Um, mm. For a while, I was interested in becoming an international relations scholar and leaving kind of the seminary world behind. But in the end, it all it all came together around ethics. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for now, sharing it's that. Interesting. Yeah. Insider was not an ethicist. Insider was a, a church historian who had a lot of ethical interests. Uh, the people okay. who affected me um, uh, were... Um, uh, people like Glenn Stassen at a Southern Baptist in Fuller, right. yep. and um, Larry Rasmussen at Union Seminary in New York. Um, the interesting thing is disciplinary lines are are kind of arbitrary, you know. Like James Cone was a theologian, but his work had a huge amount of impact on on ethics, right? You sure. Know, uh, uh, biblical scholars make contributions that are relevant to ethics. In fact, that's one of the things I love about ethics. I'm looking at my library here in my in my home office. To do ethics, you have to do and know Bible, church history, theology, contemporary issues, you know. And so my library reflects that because you have to read in all of that to be a decent ethicist. Sure. And and I feel compelled to uh, uh, to drop a plug for you here as you referenced Stassen. And I believe that's who you co-authored Kingdom Ethics with. Is that correct? Um, 
a number of years ago. And, and in fact, uh, so borrowing, I presume, or, or, or bearing that torch further down, Kingdom Ethics is the name of your current podcast um, that is released semi-routinely, I believe. Right. Um, thank you for that. I, I, as we as we broach and or establish, um, you know, guideposts for evangelicalism and uh, uh, listeners may be able to know, you may be able to know, we are recording during the day. Uh, if you hear a dog barking in the background, we'll just, that's life. It's, it's that's real life. life happening. It's real life. Um, so what's really funny about this conversation around evangelical slash evangelicalism is I remember reading Campolo in college and the phrase of evangelicalism being present there. And, and I even remember thinking, and, and I'm the guy, Dr. Gashi, I like, I was, uh, to, to, to what extent this word is helpful these days was, was saved in the Southern Baptist church. Uh, I went to the Southern Baptist liberal arts college. Uh, I worked at the Christian bookstore, like my teeth are cut on that world. And I remember reading the works of Tony Campolo who referenced evangelicalism a lot and being like, I don't, I don't even understand what this is. I don't know what this word is referring to um, yeah. and having a, uh, having a difficult time at that point, wrestling down what are the par parameters and boundaries of this and, and your book, uh, which hasn't, I don't think I've name dropped yet, but after evangelicalism, most recent book uh, prior to the new one about to be out um, very directly addresses this. And so I, I would wonder if you'd offer, you yeah. know, however briefly or not you want to, yeah. what are some guideposts or boundaries for what that word entails and means? I think um, it is a fascinating word and how you define the word says a lot about what you think about the community that it is, is associated with it. So if you ask a certain generation of historians and theologians, that word is defined theologically. What is an evangelical? An evangelical is a theologically uh, conservative Protestant who believes in the authority of scripture the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the need to be converted uh, and make a full commitment to Christ, and the need for a life of discipleship, evangelism, and mission, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So this is what's called the Bevington quadrilateral, scripture, cross, conversion, and activism, he called it. So with variations, um, Evangelicals liked to, and I think sometimes still do like to define themselves by those sturdy theological parameters, right? But what's happening now is um, more of, huh, let's say, a deconstruction of that understanding of evangelicalism and more of a historical realism about what that term means, in, at least in the American context. So here's the way I define it. The term evangelical was eventually chosen by a group of fundamentalists, white men, pastors, and parachurch leaders, and some academics in the 1940s to attempt to draw into being a new community that would be more open-minded than, than the fundamentalism that they were all coming out of, and more conservative theologically than the mainline Protestantism that they, were, that they had always rejected. So they were a reformist, they were a group of reformist fundamentalists. Um, they hoped to create a, you might say, a third way between mainline and fundamentalism. They 
eventually arrived at the label evangelical, which they retrieved from the past um, and said, that's who we are. We're the true evangelicals. We're the ones who have the gospel. Uh, we have the commitment to scripture uh, and all of that. Um, but we're also not angry, narrow and, you know, hardline, hard shell people like the fundamentalists are. Um, and understood, you might say, sociologically, their, their goal of rebranding a part of fundamentalism as a separate movement and then building institutions around that was fabulously successful for a long time. Sure. They, um, they were able to convince a lot of people <laughs> that evangelicalism was good, evangelicalism was what they wanted to be, should be, or were. So not only did they create institutions, you know, colleges, seminaries, publishing houses, magazines, parachurch, they also got some older institutions to also rebrand as evangelical. So it became an identity that you wanted, like, um, I don't know, young urban professional or something. In other words, it had a positive valence associated with it for a while. Branding. Yeah. Branding. It was branding. And, um, and they, they got a big assist from historians who began treating evangelicalism as if it was a real thing and had always been there. Pollsters who began polling for looking for the word evangelical. Are you an evangelical? Defining it, seeing how many people there were. Um, but what recent critical scholarship, mainly coming from former evangelicals or even current evangelicals, is saying is that the original fundamentalism and the original kind of conservative white American male social location actually has more to do with what evangelicalism became than those theological hallmarks that used to be claimed. <laughs> and that that community that was birthed about 1943, is, so it's now about 80 years old, that that community has some toxicity in it. Um, routine widespread toxicity that is driving a lot of people out um and so you got a number of books and all kinds of online spaces of people who have been driven out or have fled that community for various reasons and it isn't because of the bible the cross or evangelism not usually it's because of toxic masculinity and purity culture and race and um anti-science attitudes and uh, inability to come to terms with LGBT people and stuff like that. So I would say that American evangelicalism, there is a global evangelicalism that doesn't have a lot of the, it isn't the same story everywhere, it varies. But American evangelicalism is a sociological phenomenon. Um, and it's a troubled one theologically and ethically because of a lot of what has developed within that community. Okay. No, thank you. That That gives a really good... Uh, uh, architecture, because uh, I will not ask you to define, because perhaps the conversation itself will offer a flavor of that, uh, much of what you uh, uh, invoke in after evangelicalism is the word post-evangelical. And so some of that um, foundational stuff is what's going to be addressed in these next few elements of our conversation. And so it's really fascinating what has occurred on our show, which is what began as uh, two college buddies talking about horror movies through the lens of uh, Christianity or being Christians, um, however we would have defined it at that time, has, has kind of evolved uh, as we inadvertently stumbled into this phrasing a number of years ago of examining what scares us to find what saves us. And we've spent, we spent all of 2021 
uh, and and for your knowledge, Dr. Gushy, listeners would submit. Uh, the first half of the year was what scares us. Second half of the year is what saves us. Listeners would submit in the what scares us uh, bracket. Hey, this this movie, um, this book, what have you, uh, really scared me for this reason. And we would kind of cover it and assess it from that sort of position, knowing we were getting to, okay, the what saves us column as well. Here's film or media that um, I, I, at the time, invoked Barbara Brown Taylor, who uh, in, I think it's Alter in the World, she references a story of a of an invitee uh, or or being invited to speak and and the prompt for the the speech or the the lecture was what's saving you now and so that kind of became you know the the dialogue around those films what's saving you now what what is a piece of film or media that you would say you know this thing is doing a great work in my understanding of myself of the world of of the things i'm afraid of so on and so forth and so it just became as i as i assessed those polls, I randomly saw your post to Facebook of, Hey, if, um, if you've, if you know of a podcast, I might not be familiar with, or not, might not be on or have seen or whatever, uh, uh, would love to engage. And I was like, you know, this would not be a perfect fit five years ago, but it feels, uh, fortuitous to, to reach out in the moment under this paradigm, uh, because so much of the touch points you've referenced even now and and explicitly do in your work are things that scare christians it scares us to to talk about with with honesty and integrity and vulnerability it scares us to live with honesty and integrity and vulnerability and thus what it then does is is withers and and harms uh not just the people we are engaging with but even ourselves as we you know kind of walk this life and so I found this really lovely idea at work here of, okay, what are the things that are scaring us? What are the things that, you know, I've, I just through personal life experience and, you know, through, through exposing myself to a lot of disparate voices have, have walked a decent path on some of these issues, but I know they are front of mind for a lot of folks. And it just, it just felt interesting and, and uh, providential to kind of frame our dialogue in that way. And so at risk of overblathering and and cannibalizing our time here, I want to start with kind of a biggie. And this is the 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 idea of LGBTQ inclusion in the church. And and what I want to be mindful of is not speaking of people who are not like me as though they're these objects and oh, we get to or don't get to include them in our paradigm. So, you know, I'm sensitive to that. Um, but some personal history matters there, and that is my degree is in theater. Um, you know, I, I produce and have performed and have been engaged with the theater and theater people for years and years and years, uh, and, and naturally, uh, have had much exposure and even deep friendship with folks who are LGBTQ and, um, never could fully assent to the, the, the going evangelical point that, that damnation was theirs. Um, and and so just just kind of left it unresolved in in sort of my spirit uh no left it unresolved in my theology um and kind of had some personal explosions occur uh in a in a traditional evangelical church uh almost a decade ago at this point that shook a lot uh of things uh in, in a real 
technical life way and in a real emotional, psychological, spiritual way, and kind of walked from that thinking, okay, <laughs> I'm kind of done keeping them out. If, if, if that's a way I can phrase it, that mm-hmm. sounds sensitive. Um, because if, 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 if pastors and presidents can act with impunity uh, under the rubric of faith and, and those trappings, I, who am I to, to sort of prohibit uh, uh, God from doing what I think he or she is already doing, which is fully loving and fully including all. And so then I stumbled on still Christian. I stumbled on changing our mind. I, I, uh, you know, rapidly read it over the course of a weekend top of 2018 and kind of highlighted everything um, more or less. And, and it became for me this beautiful permission to, to live into that theology. Um, and, and I will, I will own for myself and for listeners. I, I can't, it is difficult to articulate. Sometimes I am not a biblical scholar. Um, I am an average Joe. As far as that goes, I, I do have a minor in religion for what that affords me. Um, but I do know a lot from personal experience and understanding of the, the character of God through Jesus and, and, and found this to be a lovely step in my own personal journey. So building to the question, I'm curious for you to the extent you feel able, can you, can you chart a path kind of, of, of perhaps what got you to changing our mind, the text? Um, and I, I want to pair these questions together, you know, and let you kind of run because so, so a is changing our mind. Talk about that. If you want Uh question B that might merit more attention is in this, what scares us and what saves us including LGBTQ folks in the life of church unashamedly and unreservedly scares the hell out of Christians. It just does. And, 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 and I don't say that with judgment um, because there's a fear of betraying scripture. There's a fear of betraying God. There's a definitive fear of betraying tradition, of course. And so I'm wondering if there's a possibility at least of pointing to a path uh, that might save us from our exclusionary scriptural interpretations that perception of tradition that might at least give people the, the, the tools they need to begin that interior work for themselves. Is that, is that too simple a question? <laughs> <laughs> That's remarkably simple. No, uh, it's, it's great. And um, as I was preparing for this conversation under the rubric of what scares us, what saves us. Um, um, I don't know if you put it this way normally, but it seems almost like, I wonder if you're coming to the conclusion that going directly at what scares us is what saves us. Absolutely. Yes. Um, So, so let me, let me try to be gut honest with you about my own journey on this, right? Um, Christian ethicists teach, in my case, thousands and thousands of students and other audiences were the authorities in some ways on the moral issues of life. One of them is sexuality. So, I mean, I started my teaching career. The first class I ever taught as a full-time professor, there was like 150 students in there at Southern Baptist Seminary. And I was 31 years old. And one of the things I was going to be responsible for teaching about was sexuality. And one part of that is you always had to deal with homosexuality, as it was called. Mm -hmm. And, And as I started my career, I hadn't done a lot of 
enough reading, really. I mean, you, nobody's an expert on everything. So I just kind of, I would say. Wait, 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 what? What? What did you just say? <laughs> nobody's an expert on everything. Sure feels like a lot of people think they are. <laughs> but I know, go ahead. I sorry. Um, so, so there's a good, there's a good tagline. Nobody's an expert sure. on everything. Um, so um, I would say that in the beginning of my career, I took what I would call a soft traditionalism, um, like the Bible's clear sex is for male and female in marriage, um, but we don't have to be mean about it. That was where I started. And I was actually around some people who were quite mean about it. The president of the seminary that I was uh, serving at one point gave a declaration that he was convinced that Paul's teaching in Romans 1 meant that homosexuality was the worst sin that there was. The worst. I mean, think about that. Not murder, not child abuse, right? Not genocide, homosexuality. Um, loading that kind of uh, judgment uh, is one of the awful things that Christians have done. Anyway, so for about 15 years, that was my posture. When I moved to Mercer University in 2007, for the first time in my career, I was in a school that was not really evangelical, so it was not as conservative, and partly as a direct consequence, there were some gay students in our seminary student body. And I also joined a church that had uh, a number of LGBT people in it. And so my uh, uh, experiential void filled in rapidly and mm. kind of like you yes. experienced, um, uh, whatever mental picture I had of LGBTQ people rapidly went away with the diversity, but also certain common experiences uh, among them, devout commitment to Jesus accompanied by constant family and church rejection. Yeah. And uh, this began to add up. Uh, also during that period, my youngest sister came out as a lesbian, uh, not really in her late 30s. She, she kept it quiet until her late 30s. So that was important for me too. But it was really more the church experience. Um, these people loved Jesus and they were just hungry for a church that would love them back. Mm-hmm. So that's by about 2009, 10. Um, but it took me another four years to muster up the courage and the readiness to say, you know, I think I need to use my Christian ethics skills to analyze this issue from the ground up and see what, what I come up with. Um, knowing in terms of what scares us, I'll tell you what scares evangelical Christian scholars. If they think a stray thought on this issue that doesn't fit with the orthodoxy of their school or their churches, they can lose their jobs in a heartbeat. Yes. But I was at a school where I had confidence that I would not lose my job, even if my thinking took me in an unconventional direction. Mm-hmm. So I want to applaud um, uh, Mercer University for giving me that freedom. So in 2014, I decided to write a series of articles in which I just took this question from the ground up. And I posted these uh, at Baptist News Global, and they're still there. You can find them one at a time, how they developed. Uh, you know, so that started in the early summer or late spring. By um, by the fall, there was about 20 of them, and, and I was going in some directions. I did not anticipate. Literally, what I was doing was thinking out loud before an audience about LGBTQ. That's scary. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, that's dangerous work. Uh, dangerous work. Um, but I feel like it was anointed work. You're going to talk about some Holy Spirit language. I feel like God was in it. I was, mm. I was in a zone. I was writing, you know, 2,000 words a week, posting them and doing it again the next week. And in the end, a book came out of it that was called Changing Our Mind. And uh, the publisher was able to turn those articles into a book in less than three months. And so by the fall of 2014, that book was out. 
and it landed like a nuclear bomb in the evangelical world. Um, and uh, the hate and the, the hate mainly and the love from those who had previously been excluded came upon me in waves. Mm, mm. The hate wounded me deeply. The love was what saved me during Amen. that. Mm. Uh, you know, 19-year-old hits me up on Facebook, direct message. Can I tell you my story? My dad just kicked me out of the house. You know, stories like that over and over and over again, right? Um, and so I am convinced even more clearly than than ever that this is an example of where the church has misread scripture, missed the heart of Jesus, and wounded millions of people. And so I've called for doctrinal change here, not just a softer rejectionism, but an actual doctrinal change, which is to say to destigmatize LGBT identity and, and uh, to bless covenanted LGBTQ relationships, just like straight people's relationships. Um, so my sexual ethic is still pretty, it's still very traditional. I believe sex belongs in marriage, but what's untraditional about it is I believe gay people should be invited into that same ethic. Mm. Um, and that's really what I proposed in changing our mind. And I, I, I got there gradually dealing with the texts that were relevant and all that. And sure. that book is all over the world, Nathan. Um, if I hear from people all over the world who have been affected by that book, some have gotten permission to accept themselves, not to mention to accept their children or their friends. Yeah. Some have said I was going to kill myself until I read your book. Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, it's a matter of life and death, a matter of mental health. And um, I really feel like it's one of the most significant things I was ever, I was ever called to do. Amen. That's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. And, and it is, it goes without saying that in the hopefully contained to an hour and a half, we're going to have together that we are, we are offering surveys of these topics, um, not as deep as they can be. And so even for listeners, again, we explore, we don't explain, if you want more uh, of what you're hearing or are intrigued or maybe pissed off, um, I would highly encourage people to at least read, uh, in this case, changing our mind with, with an open mind towards the possibility of change. I do want to um, pivot, if it's okay, to our sure. second <laughs> oh so minor issue here. Uh, and honestly, you, you can vouch for this. This was not in the original sort of notes I sent you because I hadn't finished after evangelicalism when I sent my first batch of notes and, and I don't remember exactly what, as I ended that book, pricked my heart to talk about this and bring this up with you, but some, some, you know, it may have even been an off note uh, or, you know, just a throwaway piece towards the end of it, coupled with the, the news of the last week. And, and I want to tiptoe uh, into a conversation about abortion. Um, there's a chance, and, and I want you to speak to this because I haven't read this work, that The Sacredness of Human Life, is that the, uh -huh. yeah, the book you worked on? Yeah. Okay. Um, in, in a second, if you will address whether you talk about this in there, uh, my guess is the, the, the likelihood. But I want to prop up the question as I did with the LGBTQ stuff with, with just the personal and, and, and walk us into the scares saves dynamic here because there is a degree of the personal here. So 
years ago, uh, six, six years, seven years, uh, we suffered a miscarriage that, uh, and we have three amazing daughters, uh, but between the second and third suffered a miscarriage, our, our only one, praise God, um, that required abortifacients to resolve. And, and I didn't want to misspeak on this. And so late, even last night at midnight, I went to research. I was like, I don't want to say a thing that isn't true, but specifically even the t- current Texas bill, which has garnered so many headlines, does reduce as well the length of time permitted to prescribe abortifacients. And if you're unfamiliar, this is, uh, you know, a prescribed drug uh, to, in our case, um, having suffered that miscarriage on my wife's before my, you know, my wife having suffered that miscarriage, it was a way to biologically resolve this with minimal, minimal, though still present uh, trauma to not force her to carry to term what we knew was lost to us. Um, to get super personal, we had already named her. Mm. Uh, she was Annie. And I, I share that simply to say that experience, her experience is absolutely not unique. And it is, it is unfortunate. The, the, you know, the, the, the extremes, extremes are always mildly unfortunate. And so we aren't really dealing with that here. Um, but because of that personal issue, because of, you know, having three daughters who live in a country that already tacitly kind of doesn't care about them and may formally indoctrinate them <laughs> very shortly, uh, this, I'll say it, this particular issue, uh, and, and its future is scary to me. Um, to me, you know, some of these others I'm, I'm a little further down the road on. And I suppose as best as able, the question that, that at least approximates a saving for us is, is can you perhaps even more pastorally than ethicist? I don't know, but what might a consistent, faithful post evangelical ethic towards this issue look like, uh, what what, you know, what might you say to someone distressed about the future of this particular matter in, in, in this country right now? Um, and, and, and to be fair to you, <laughs> I am loading a lot in this. So I want to be sensitive to that and, and you can squirm out from under that pressure if needed, but uh, it, it feels important to at least point to and, and have a, have a dialogue, you know? Um, uh, Nathan, um, how far along uh, was the pregnancy when you were I was actually thinking about that today and I can't quite recall it's, it was a while, um, as in it's been a while. And if I had to guess, it was definitely past what is now going to be the Texas seven weeks, you know, uh, those things are, and, and, uh, in, in even listening to some, some podcasting, you know, conversations about this lately, that's, that's one of the major components of these bills and, and what the, receding of these timelines does is is problems that get discovered within the proposed timeline are not able to be resolved inside of that timeline which creates extreme problem Uh, for those who are not me and yet i want to bear that burden with them because that's the call i'm sorry um well my pastoral side uh says first of all thank you for sharing that story with me um 
we lost two pregnancies ourselves after mm. three successful pregnancies. Um, these were at about midterm, almost 20 weeks. Wow. Mm. So um, we also were faced with, uh, okay, if you have a, a dead fetus, uh, what do you do, right? Um, it is not healthy at all uh, for, for the mother to carry around uh, a child that has already died. You have to do something about that, right? So, so at that stage, we were given two options. One would have been more of a classic uh, abortion, like uh, dilation and extraction. Um, sure. And the other was actually uh, giving the, um, the kind of medicine that women are given to induce labor. And yep. so Jeannie did that. But, but we had those choices um, because the doctors needed and were allowed to use whatever was the safest thing for the woman in that situation, right? Uh, now, Jeannie was the inducing of, of labor. And so we actually went twice within a year through, I guess, twice within 14 months, through induced labor to have a child be born that you knew was dead, right? Mm. Mm. And we had named both of those children too, right? I am not casual, and we buried those children in the, in the cemetery. Mm. Um, so I am not casual about abortion. I've written about abortion some. It's in Kingdom Ethics. Okay. Um, it's in the new book, Introducing Christian Ethics, uh, under a, a chapter that's called Preventing Unwanted Pregnancy and Abortion. Um, so I am, uh, I am pro-life in the sense that I, I accept the tradition of the church that um that abortion elective abortion um because the child is unwanted um is is a, a morally um morally problematic if not morally wrong act depending on the circumstances um that routine use of elective abortion means that something has gone very wrong in the the sexual and relational practices between men and women in a society and I also, in that new chapter, I, I say that the situation we found ourselves in after the 1960s was the promise that turned out to be an illusion that birth control was going to solve this for us. Mm -hmm. That everybody who started having sex, um, married or unmarried, would just take the birth control pill, they wouldn't get pregnant, and so um, they could control their fertility that way. But even today, nearly half of all pregnancies are unwanted uh, in the U.S. and around the world. Um, and actually, one measure uh, of the uh, kind of uh, moral orderliness of a society and the extent to which it has gotten this under control is that percentage. If you can get down to 20% of the pregnancies being unwanted, you're doing better, right? But we're at 45%. And I, I would say that a society in which half of all pregnancies are unwanted is definitely going to yield a demand for abortion. And, and that demand for abortion is going to be met um, either legally or illegally. So what uh, current abortion law has tried to do in America is to, is to basically say, okay, um, not that abortion is a positive good, but because we have a demand we're going to um, give women the opportunity to end their pregnancies, especially in the first trimester, so that's 13 weeks, somewhat more restrictions in the second trimester. And, and then if you're as late as the third trimester, um, then you've got a real problem. You're gonna, it's going to be much more difficult. It's going to have to be an emergency, right? But what these laws are doing now, like in Texas, is essentially banning abortion. Right. Um, but, but I think we know from history that what that means is that 
if you are if you are a, a woman or a woman from a family that has a lot of money in the bank, you're going to get in the car, get on an airplane, and go someplace where you can get an abortion. Right. If you are a poor woman who who uh, maybe works at a restaurant and has about six dollars in the bank, um, and you want to end a pregnancy, you're going to have to. Uh, uh, the black market for abortions will begin again. Right. Um, and and I think the people who have money have no idea what it's like to to live as the people who don't have money. Yes. You say, just get in the car and cross the state line. Well, that involves gas. Some people mm-hmm. don't have money for gas, mm-hmm. right? Some people don't have a working car. Um, so I think that I think that there's a reason, and in the book, I basically say there's a reason why we have the laws that we do. I think they could be tightened some, but 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 the law that they just that they passed in Texas, I think, is unrealistically and unjustly restrictive. That's what I would say. Um, but there's broader wisdom. There's broader wisdom that we need to communicate, even in a post-evangelical space. There's a reason why Mama and them, Grandmama and them, Grandpa and them said, "Try to wait until you're married to have sex." There's a reason. Mm-hmm. Because having sex outside of having heterosexual sex outside of marriage risks pregnancy. An unwanted pregnancy creates a crisis. Are you ready to deal with that crisis? Okay. So you can take birth control, and and that reduces the risk of that crisis happening, but it doesn't reduce it to zero. So I think we need to rebuild a culture of marriage. If people are going to have sex, they need to be responsible with birth control, but that involves levels of responsibility about taking your medicine, when you do, et cetera, et cetera. Not everybody's very good at that or very responsible with that. So this is a part of the tragedy of the human condition, but it's also part of a modern tragedy of a loose sexual morality that does not correspond to the way human bodies are made. And it it creates situations of crisis left and right. Um, The law has attempted to flex to take care of the problem um, but anti-abortion zealotry is now going to force a lot of desperate women into a lot of desperate situations. If this is yes, yeah. yes, so that's what I would well, think about abortion. No, and that's that's much appreciated. And and you know, let in so far as scares and saves is is a mantra here. So is exploring, not explaining. And so the the frustration we will always come back to with major. Uh, tentpole issues is 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 we aren't often happy with just exploring and that being <laughs> the uh, what we are left with because some of this is so nuanced and complex and and societally complicated not just uh, individually you you talk a lot um, perhaps it's in the book I, I listened to the most recent Kingdom Ethics podcast from September that and so some of that's floating in my head too but you talk a lot about the common good and I think that is a uh, an absent dynamic, uh, at minimum, a, a diminishing dynamic. Uh, in my more cynical days, an absent dynamic uh, that would like to foist all of these responsibilities and, and uh, problems on individuals without kind of acknowledging and, and recognizing the mutual culpability inherent in all of it. Um, I totally agree. In our society, especially our libertarianism and lack of understanding of the common good lack of commitment to it it also uh, it helps to explain a lot of stuff about our society including the covid situation being as bad as it turned out to be here sure. um, and 
<clears throat> That's right. not one of our topics today, David. I'm not, I'm not, let's keep on going, man. <laughs> okay, so all we yeah. talked about so far is LGBT and abortion. What do you got? What do you got? Right, right, right. Yes. Um, I, I did want, as a last plug, there is your um, in after evangelicalism. There's a chapter called Sex, but deals directly with purity culture, and this this actually will helpfully uh, provide an unintentional but but fortuitous segue into our perhaps final topic here one i just want to compliment you on after evangelicalism it i i ordered it roughly when it came out and just life is busy and full and um and my wife gets on to me because she's like nathan you you gotta read some lighter fare sometimes just to <laughs> i i i it's a bit self-flagellating the the mostly the reading i'll do but when you couple that with a lot of horror movies <laughs> sometimes it's just yeah need some need some brightness sometimes but so only recently in prep for today, uh, uh, went through after evangelicalism and, and one, it's just, it's an impressive work. So I want to compliment you on that because, um, because it takes incredibly sensitive things is very direct and accessible. And, and how I described it to my wife, I was like, dead gum. He is just uppercutting on every page. These you know, it's everything is, is there's no fat, there's no fat on the text. And so I, I compliment you for that because, um, why I'm bringing that up now is, is the, the chapter on sex, my wife and I, as, as parents of three daughters who, who maybe not uh, had articulated pri previously, but are in kind of post evangelical space, mind space, at least spirit space, trying to raise three daughters, trying to do our best to not trying to not so totally reject all of our experience because there is good to be found, but trying to chart a better path, uh, for what we would say was the residual elements that we would look back and say, I'm not sure about X, uh, and, and attempt to raise. And so that's a long way of saying the purity culture section in there. I, I shared with my wife, Tracy, um, this is an important thing for you to check out because, because it addresses some of what we've tried to engage as, as she and I, as parents talk about how do we parent daughters and not saddle them with shame, uh, that, that is going to come from everywhere, um, already, uh, unnecessarily. So, so, so I appreciate the work you did there. Um, I appreciate that. Can I just say that I, yes. I use the language of covenantal realism in that chapter. And so um, I firmly believe that what our, our teenagers need is good information and a moral framework that is realistic and I think clearly biblical, but not the shame dimension. So, so I think it's possible to teach 15-year-olds, you know, very honestly, here's how sex works, and here's the power of the body, and here's the tremendous responsibility of fertility, and here's how you can get hurt, here's how you can hurt other people, here's why the tradition has taught waiting till marriage, here's why that's hard, but here's why it, it makes sense. Um, the responsibility for that is on everybody, not just on girls, um, and uh, part of what you're doing in, in the dating arena is learning how to gradually grow in your covenant commitment with somebody hopefully one day somebody who you can be married to, but none of that has to be loaded with shame. It's just realistic, you know, and it's about the human good. Right. So, but what the course what evangelicalism did was they, um, 
they they loaded shame, especially on the backs of young women. And and of course they got apps they got really extreme about it. Shame for having a sexual thought, shame for kissing a boy, shame for whatever. Um, and that was not realistic. And so, and then all kinds of awful, stupid games and illustrations and examples, leaving on a whole body of wreckage that was completely preventable. And so that's part of what's being reconsidered right now, you know? Um, but so post-evangelical to me doesn't mean I hate everything about all of that because there were pieces of it that were valuable, but a lot of the apparatus of that just needs to be dismissed. And, yes. and um, one thing about my social location is I don't have to be afraid of anybody. So I don't write with fear and I don't, I don't kind of, you know, sometimes with authors, you know, cause you, you can sense that they're operating with boundaries that if, if they say this, they're going to get fired. So they kind of back away from it, but you can tell they want to, but they stop right at the brink. Right. I don't have to, I don't have to live that way. And so I'm able to say things pretty directly, as you said, uppercut after uppercut. Right. 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 Um, yeah. Well, and, and, and it's funny. I remember reading changing our mind. It's still Christian and, and maybe you'll validate some of this, but I, I think it's tempered a bit though, though the impact still lives uh, from a, that those two books were written. They were not written out of anger. Uh, they were written charged uh, and and with a desire to articulate oneself and not really have concern per se for <laughs> the the softness of the ear that might receive it. So no, yeah. I really compliment that that approach. Um, and 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 you said something, and we're going to get to this last note. But I think if if anything serves to to actually anger me and make me Hulk like. An incredible hook that is um is it is and why these bills like texas why this conversation about abortion is so important is man we have we have made all of these women responsible for all of it and are gonna keep doing it and and that's that is that is sin that is that is societal civilizational sin wrong and error to somehow have done that and perhaps continue to foist all of that burden responsibility and shame on women and and i get very passionate about that um yeah when you add toxic masculinity and some of this uh sexualization you know almost like well what Kristen dumay calls the john wayne evangelical mm -hmm. john wayne so you do this kind of aggressive sexualized masculinity that doesn't take no for an answer and then you load purity culture shame on women it is a recipe for disaster mm -hmm. and i i would never raise a child in that environment now and i would and i would say run as fast as you can from that combination it is a recipe for abuse for violence and for women being wounded amen um there, there's a chance we'll 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 tag a few things on at the end here, but I did want to address at least for this conversation a final pillar to really point to and examine and and uh, very bluntly that is race and as race uh, not even so much relates to America itself though though the uh, that will be unavoidable to point to but as it relates to the church and I want to share a quote that you share at the top of your 
almost final chapter, perhaps final chapter in after evangelicalism uh, that you attribute to Ebony Marshall Terman. And the quote is just, white Christianity in America was born in heresy. And at the end of that little section, uh, delivering one of your uppercuts, you say yourself, if what comes after evangelicalism does not address our racism at its roots, we should not bother. And one, I want to just applaud the, the um, willingness to be that direct and bold and, 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 and share, as I have a slight journey here, the, the biggest linchpin in my, uh, if I had an access point on my sort of um, comprehension of all I had been ignorant of uh, when it comes to race in both America and the church, it began with reading Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson uh, in, I want to say, maybe 2015 or so, whatever whatever its year of release was, but it's been six or seven years now. And that that was a profound work for me that, that kind of shot me out of the canon uh, into new fields of comprehension and, and empathy and growth and perhaps wisdom. Uh, and I want to invite listeners and, and you name drop this gentleman in your work as well. Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, he and Stevenson are big pillars to me of this conversation. There's a lot more that can be added to that. That's, those are modern people. Uh, I'm sure there's others that are worth adding from the pre-modern pre-current moment. Um, so, so those voices started broadening my horizons, um, and, and listeners will be bored of the story at this point, but my wife and I, for my, I'm 42 now, uh, I think 39th birthday, maybe three years ago for <laughs> when I talk about self-flagellation, this is what I mean for my 39th birthday. Uh, it became very important to me in this, uh, uh excavation project that is, uh, as Richard Rohr says, my second half of life, um, uh, to go visit the EJI, uh, um, site in Montgomery. Yeah. And everybody, and if you haven't been, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, everybody needs to go there. I've been there. Yeah. Yes. And, 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 and I'm a very visual learner, you know, I, I, I do read a lot, uh, but I forget a lot of what I read and it's more impression and, and, Hey, Gushy delivers uppercuts. Well, what did he say? Oh, I don't know. You should read it though. Um, <laughs> that kind of thing. So, you know, the, the visual medium is very valuable to my uh, uh, comprehension. And so being present, uh, being in that space, walking through that museum from enslavement to mass incarceration, we wept. I mean, we just stood on what I would call holy ground and just wept and grieved and and are in the process of repenting for all the ignorance uh so so you have that which i'm pretty the visit to eji is after but the experience of stevenson's just mercy is before the 2016 election and that became a, a, a just a master stroke i'll i'll practice under your tutelage uh, uh jedi master gushy and, and employ an uppercut here that became a masterstroke in civilizational error that blew the doors off of, of what I kind of understood and comprehended about our even lip service to appreciation for brothers and sisters, not like us. 
so I want to address that issue, not the election, you know, that that's interwoven into a lot of this, but, but just the conversation around from a race standpoint, from a, what scares us standpoint, it feels like looking squarely at evangelicalism's deep history and perhaps inextricable ties to America's white supremacist DNA. Is it possible that there's no what saves us that doesn't soberly name that truth and grieve over it? You know, what, what does post-evangelicalism look like? Forget the phrase, the pithy, you know, uh, not to insult you, but the branding, what is faithfulness to God? What is, um, we just, we just covered on our show at the end of 2021, the film, a hidden life by Terrence Malick. And you'll especially appreciate that as I know your, your history with the study of the Holocaust era. And there's, I'm, I'm going to, I didn't mean to divert here, but it matters. Um, uh, I'm going to couple this with, with teaching of mine as I studied the prophets in undergrad at Gardner Webb under Dr. Paula Fontana Qualls, wonderful professor and teacher in person. And I remember studying the prophets and having this revelatory moment of, because you come out of your high school evangelical milieu, you go into this uh, box that gets all shaken up and, and, and all of that from an academic standpoint and, and theological standpoint. And I remember in that course on the prophets coming away of saying, oh, so these aren't just like weirdo, uh, you know, uh, uh, crystal ball people, right? You know, like, let's, let's look at the crystal ball, you know, the prophets, oh, they're going to foretell the coming judgment of blah, 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 whatever. Because what, what stood out to me was the bigger takeaway is, and I'm going to tie this to a hidden life, is that the prophets tell us, do what is right. And, and, and that's problematic for us because we want our structures and our systems to do the right for us, to result, absolve us of it. But point, bringing back to a hidden life uh, and, and, and skirting the, the matter of post-evangelicalism from a church standpoint, uh, that movie is about uh, a, gentleman, a conscientious objector to uh, serving in the German army under Hitler. And it's this really beautiful poem of a movie that he, he, he gets called up and he will not serve. And, and the ultimate, it's based on a true story actually of this couple. And he ultimately is killed, uh, martyred by his, his unwillingness to do so. But one of the final beats of the film is the wife and, and the frame of the film is letters of them to each other, the Mm -hmm. wife and the husband, uh, and this journey they're on of, of wrestling and, and, and deliberation and, um, ethics. And, and, and I'm pretty positive. It's the wife who, one of her final lines of the film and it's voiceover narration, she says, do what is right. And it's almost this release, right? It's like, do what is right. And, Mm -hmm. and I, 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 what's hard about that prism is there's so many influences outside of that, that want to impose uh, a perspective of rightness um, that may may in fact be counter to it, and so that's a that's a long winded preamble as we assess the idea of doing what is right and moving forward in a reconciliatory state in a repentant state towards our black and brown brothers and sisters. You know what is what is what is a church life in that zone and sphere look like? Um. 
do what is right is a really um that's just a really great way to summarize in a sense what ethics is about too as i understand it um we're trying to help christians do what is right yeah so i mean so now there are there are scholars who are just more kind of abstract and they they don't really try to take on a leadership role in their community but i've always understood christian ethics to be about helping christians do what is right but you also said along the way that um there are a lot of forces that teach us how to do wrong basically mm -hmm. and um so the battle for the moral soul of every christian is a real one because christians face competing gods competing ideologies competing um voices in our heads that tell us this is right no no, no don't worry about that this is the way this is the way to do it um, right i personally would interpret donald j trump as uh, an idol um for many christians who taught people how to do wrong and to call it right you know mm -hmm. um but but deeper deeper in the roots of american history and of christian history um and then in after evangelicalism i take it back to european 15th century uh colonialism um we were trained to do wrong and to look at the world wrongly if we were the majority white european christians and then the descendants of these people in north america and south america um in other places um we were trained to believe that people of white skin or light skin uh, were superior that we were the christians that um that we had a divine mandate to conquer and rule the world that this mandate included um to enslave other people who were different and to, and to kill a lot of people who were already there um and so this is the really the the origins of chattel slavery and and so on are in european colonialism mm -hmm. and a vision of christianity that was a conquering vision rather than a servant vision um and that understood evangelism <laughs> in large part or in part at least as a project uh undertaken at the point of a sword and so the europeans came they came to latin america they came to north america they were dutch and english they were portuguese and french and spanish uh some were more cruel others were less cruel the french were relatively less cruel compared to some of the others right the dutch were relatively less cruel but um the portuguese the spanish and the british who ended up dominating the western hemisphere brought a toxic uh, what i call white christian supremacist worldview in which everything got blended together to be christian was to be european was to be white was to be superior was to be in charge and was to dominate and rule the world and that explains a lot of how the indigenous peoples of the western hemisphere were treated mm -hmm. as well as the whole tradition of slavery so so it got into the dna of euro-american christianity and that really is what the what the liberation theologians began the black theologians and the people of as far back as frederick Douglass and people in latin america in the 15th and 16th century you guys have brought something evil here in the name of your god and we're going to have to resist you and they were crushed and we dominated 
but this kind of white European American Christian supremacism got into the bloodstream of our religion and it never went away. It was never repented. It was gradually softened. Slavery was finally defeated. Then, then there was Jim Crow. Jim Crow was right. finally defeated. And now there's this backlash, right? But the idea of, um, the thing is, Christianity got entangled with this from the beginning. There were always Christian voices who said, this is ungodly, unholy, wrong. We can't. I mean, there were people in the 17th century, 16th century, even late 15th century saying, you can't conquer and torture and enslave other people in the name of Jesus. Mm. But those voices were dissenting voices. The dominant voices blessed the project. And, and that project came to, to be the one that shaped the world that we inherited. So I, I, I interpret America circa 2022 as still deeply shaped by that, those centuries of history, partly because we Christian folks never repented it. Amen. When, did, when did Christians say, you know, the slavery project was evil and we were wrong? When did Christians say the uh, decimation of the indigenous people of, of North America was wrong um, and repented it? We're too invested in the world that that mm-hmm. series of events mm-hmm. made. You know, um, it's our world. We cre- we 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 created white Christian America. We dominated, and a lot of our politics is still dominated by the idea that we think we deserve to be in charge. We don't want these other people here. At least, if they're going to be here, we don't want them in charge. Right. And um, when whenever you have serious progress for people of color, or for people who uh, from Latin America originally, or whatever, or for people who are not Christian, there's always pushback. And and so the project that we are now called to is to repent the entire complex of white Christian supremacism. But the good news is, as Howard, I have a chapter on Howard Thurman, who wrote Jesus and the Disinherited, one of my favorite books. Everybody should read it, 1949. As Howard Thurman said in that book, this was never about Jesus. Jesus was among the disinherited. If you brought a conquering Jesus, you brought a Jesus who is foreign to the New Testament. Mm. So the problem isn't Jesus. The problem is the colonialist Jesus, the this the settler Jesus, the race, the racist dominated Jesus. Um, but this, but see, this work is very hard because when you go to the root of it, there's so much to repent. Yes. You end up having to realize if we're going to still be Christians, if we're going to still be Christian after this, it involves a lot of renunciation of large chunks of our history, but it doesn't involve renouncing Jesus because Jesus was there all along. Jesus, Jesus was always standing with those that, that were dominated and oppressed, just as he did during his ministry. Um, Mm. I see Jesus weeping with the enslaved, not standing with the uh, slave master. But we didn't get that. Um, the call to we, we we got we got the Thomas Kincaid like uh, paintings of the slave right. master with Jesus's hand on his shoulder. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and then you know we, I, you know, you and I are both former Southern Baptists, right? If you actually, I haven't. I know there must be books about this, but Southern Baptists was were formed in 1845 in defense of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and our hymns. In church life 
developed after that point with the heroic effort always required to to keep racism aligned with Jesus. And um, and so there's an awful lot of hymns that were written and Bible studies that were written and sermons that were preached, um, helping us to put our fingers in our ear and not listen to the actual Jesus and the prophets of the Bible. That's why I think a lot of our hymns are just kind of sappy or used to be sappy and sentimental, uh, kind of the privatizing and sentimentalizing of Christianity, I think had a lot to do with having to come up with a version of Christianity that didn't challenge an unjust status quo that we had helped to invent. Mm. There are, there are moments sometimes where it's like, I, I referenced it a minute ago, but the film, a hidden life, another line from it, that's really powerful and lovely when, uh, although honestly in a moment of despair in the narrative, the wife pleading with the husband, not to, proceed down the path that's materializing she says you can't change the world the world is stronger and it's and i that's kind of haunted me uh, that's a fresh film uh for me and 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 i think about that in these contexts because the project is too big you know um what i'm not saying is you don't find the work that has to be done but these 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 little revelatory moments that happen in our lives sometimes if we're if we're open to them i remember uh, some text of the last couple of years reading and and just having this moment it's like oh my god like the amount of moral gymnastics we had to do to pull off this project <laughs> uh specifically slavery and its its implementation uh, in this context, though there are others, uh, is is kind of incomprehensible, and and is frankly, in the in the language of the film, it's 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 too. You, I can't change that. It's too strong. That is that thing. That thing took roots, and uh, I'm going to get horror on you here, like a like a Cthulhu monster from the depths uh, uh, wrapped itself around history itself. And, yeah, and, yeah. and 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 tightened uh its tentacles and and so i i think sometimes and and maybe this is me being overly poetic and not pragmatic but sometimes you start where you start of like it is true i i you we we can't change the world the world is stronger but i think there's a chance that the that the work is actually recreating it you know not necessarily that thing is dead and done and desiccated and decayed, but we, 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 we birth a new thing inside of that, which is dead and done and desiccated and decayed. You mm -hmm. recreate what is there because, because what is there is, is, is layers of attrition and, and history and, uh, momentum, not God and faithfulness and compassion and empathy and even ethics. And I, I don't know. I think it's it is soul blisteringly hard work, uh, but 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 the work can't even start if we can't name it. You know. Yeah. Can I? Um, yeah. I'll I'll start there just to say, being committed to understanding the truth, um, without illusions and without self defense, is where I think we need to start, and. And that involves a constant willingness to read, think, engage, and grow. 
the, the like the account I just offered of the the monster that we created with this white Christian supremacism, I had not that had not all pulled together for me until relatively recently. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm almost 60 years old now, Nathan, and it, it has taken me a lot of years to read enough and think enough and have enough conversations and repent enough to be able to to see that. And I'm sure there's a lot that I still don't get, right? Um, and then to come up with the image and images and the language to describe what that is and then what you do about it. I mean, it's, it is, it is the history that has determined the path that we have found ourselves on. Um, and I, sometimes I think of viral images, you know, just when you think you've got like COVID under control, it gives you a new mutation and there you go. That's how this race stuff is. Just when you mm-hmm. think you've made progress over here, here's a new mutation and it goes over there. It, um, people say we'll be dealing with COVID for the rest of our lifetime. We're going to be dealing with the race issue for the rest of human history and American history. Um, but at least we can name it for what it is and we can be part of the community that is attempting to repent it, uh, repent of it. Mm-hmm. And um, doing things like going to the Montgomery um, uh, anti the lynching memorial and that exhibit there right. um, anything we do that makes it harder for us to live in denial is good. Yes. Yes. So, so take the little God, we stuff. hate, we love living in denial. Right. We have, in fact, um, in, in the new book, I, I have a chapter on race too. And I, I quote from a number of black novelists. And one of the things that these novels consistently reveal is that white people live in self-induced blindness because we can't face reality, the reality that we have created. Um, and so, when you say, I will no longer be blind, I will seek to no longer be blind, you're doing something important morally. Um, but we don't get, white people need help getting the blinders off that we have sewed onto our eyes. And um, people of color, uh, through their novels, uh, uh, movies, his- historical work, or every other way, friendship, church partnership, uh, we have to have help in getting the blinders off of off of our eyes. Isn't that you a know, horror movie image? Blinders. I, I was about to compliment you eyes. for that. Yes, I was about to say you you may you may find yourself a home here uh, <laughs> with yeah. that kind of imagery. I mean, that's <laughs> what it's like. Uh, it is so important to remain blind that we are going to take our needle and thread and sew the blinders onto our eyes. Yes. Yes. Uh, wow. Well, Doctor Gushy, what a gift. Um, to be able to dialogue with you here. I wonder if as a, a final thought, and maybe it is even misplaced, but it occurred to me during our conversation to invite you to, to uh, share a little bit of this at the front of after evangelicalism, you, and apologies for putting you on the spot here, but I think it's an easy one. Um, you, you reference the idea of Christian humanism. Um, yeah. And I, I, I wonder if as kind of a final, because, because how it came off to me was, uh, uh, as these blinders have been horror movie style rent from your eyes, uh, there's a new lens that gives you the opportunity uh, to to assess, to engage, to comprehend, to grieve and repent, as it were. And that perhaps I'm misreading, but uh, perhaps this was that new lens. And I wonder if you kind of offer that in final thoughts. Yeah, um, I talk about. Christian humanism in, uh, towards the end of chapter three of after evangelicalism. And I basically, this was a surprise. You know, one of the things that I love about writing is 
it's a process. And I, I feel sometimes I get these like lightning bolts of surprise. You know, I, I did not start this book thinking, oh, I'm going to build towards Christian humanism. It just kind of came to me as I was writing. Mm-hmm. But Christian humanism is an old idea, goes back uh, at least to uh, the early Reformation and the figure of Erasmus. And, um, and I, I thought, you know, I think in, in a lot of ways, my the theological vision that I've arrived at could be described as Christian humanist. And here's, here's the way I, I name that. Um, rooted in a sense that Christians are part of a common humanity, committed to a quest for human unity, hopeful about the moral potential of human beings while realistic about human sin, respectful toward and engaged with the common human intellectual enterprise, resolute in recognizing and respecting human freedom, concerned with the holistic well-being of human beings in this world and the creation, and not just souls for the next world, committed to seeking common ground and peaceful solutions to human problems, and understanding Christianity to be about others, serving others, the way that Jesus came to serve others, and the way that Bonhoeffer said Jesus was the man for others, and the church, to be the church, must be for others. Hmm. I think the, the version of Christianity that a lot of evangelicals have produced doesn't resemble that at all. It's something very different. It's brittle and defensive, otherworldly and doctrinaire, not especially helpful in addressing human problems, and often focused on imagined cons- you know, conspiracy theories or defensiveness about the place of Christianity in the world. Do we want to matter in the world? Then let's lay ourselves down to serve others um, and, and, um, and to be open to being a part of the solution to all the violations of human dignity and human flourishing that happened around us every day. Mm. Excellent. Thank you. Um, we spent a lot of time in this conversation talking about your past works. Um, I do want to invite you here at the end to at least pitch for us uh, this new book that's coming out. Uh, I believe the title is Introducing Christian Ethics. Um, you know, sounds like there's a book series afoot, uh, perhaps, with that phrase of introducing. Uh, but I uh, wanted to let you share a little bit about um, maybe perhaps the journey to it and or, you know, what people might find if they do uh, check it out. Here's the test print. I'll show it to you. Um, yep. I'm on the I'm on the cover looking like Joel Osteen, so you know it's time. You know, uh, so <laughs> it's your best book now. Yeah, my best book now. Your best ethics now. Um, <laughs> so uh, it is an overview of the field of Christian ethics. It's about a hundred thousand words. It's a meaty book. Um, it's like a successor to Kingdom Ethics and kind of builds on Kingdom Ethics, but it's my own solo work this time. Glenn died. Glenn Stassen died in 2014, so I'm on my own in this way. Um, and it, it deals with um, kind of all the methodological and then ethical issues that I've attempted to understand and work with in my career. It's getting really, really good endorsements from my peers. I, I'm hoping that it's a book, by the way, it's simultaneously going to be released as print book, ebook, audio book, and a vis- video lectures. You can actually oh. scan a QR code in the book and get video or, or audio. Um, cool. Yeah. So, um, it's intended for the widest possible use written where regular human beings can understand it. All terms are defined along the way. Um, it's coming out with front edge publishing. I believe January 11th is the release date. And, um, I'm really excited about it. Uh, it's intended to serve the church. It's in the post evangelical space. I think I, but I only use the phrase a couple of times. Um, it's for Christians everywhere, wherever they are, you know? Yeah. 
sounds like universalism to me, heretic. Oh, come um, on, Nathan. <laughs> things were going so well. Oh, um, boom. The no. universalism card gets played right here at the end. Um, hey, you know, maybe it's true. <laughs> but I'm, I'm definitely not a universalist, but I am, I am universally committed to Christians being more faithful to Jesus. And that's what this book is about. So excellent. Excellent. In terms well, of how people find out about me, uh, I have a website that's kept fresh, and you can also learn a lot about, I mean, there's video uh, and all, all kinds of stuff. It's davidpgutchie.com. So if you send people there, that'd be awesome. Awesome. We'll definitely do that. Um, uh, uh, what a joy it's been to share this time with you and, and hopefully rewarding for our listeners. Um, uh, speaking of listeners, uh, you know that we tend to take January off. So uh, this is an off format episode, but there are still treats perhaps left uh, in this January month before we dive back into the film vault. Um, so we had a couple surprises there. Be on the lookout in your feeds. Um, as we say every week, uh, and hopefully is no clearer than it might be today, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom but it is not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. Thank you for your time, Dr. Gushy, on the fear of God today. Thank you, Nathan.